Hi. Thanks for uh, stopping by. Before diving in, I will say that if you would like to support my work, which I hope now and then would consider, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And of course, all the talks are on the podcast site, which is Dharma Punks with an X NYC dot podbean dot com. And tonight, we're going to be diving into the rather ambitiously titled Why We Do the Things That We Do, tackling issues along the lines of free will and self-control, why these concern matters. Hope you'll join me. For much of human history, we assumed that thought was essentially the epicenter of the mind, the director of cognition, the originator of our behavior, and the constituent of our sense of self. Much like for centuries upon centuries, people assumed that the earth was the center of the universe because it seems that way. We're standing on it. It looks like all the stars are circling around us. And so it seemed that thought, inner speech, was the epicenter and the driver of behavior. Now, this illusion persisted at least until the 1890s when the famous American psychologist William James stated that our emotions aren't based on thoughts, but are the result of unconscious physiological reactions to external stimuli. In other words, we unconsciously observe the world around us and we respond before we think, and that these emotional responses are in many ways the origins of our actions, not our thought. Then several years later, around the turn of the 20th century, Freud proposed how unconscious drives for connection with others and drives of aggression could overwhelm the conscious ego censorship and the unconscious aggressions, for example, he said in jokes, were a way that these unconscious drives would express themselves and also in dreams and also in slips of the tongue. And as his theories were developed, more and more attention was draped around the role of the unconscious in human behavior. In the 1960s, an American neuroscientist named Paul McLean proposed that the brain was organized in what he called a triune uh, hierarchy, the triune brain, which from his point of view, and even though it's no longer really taught, he believed there was the reptilian brain, uh, which was the basal ganglia, the medulla, the brainstem, the emotional brain, the limbic system, and the rational brain, which is the neocortex. And that these were all genetically programmed in vastly different stages of evolution. But more importantly, McLean stated that um, most of our behaviors are based on emotional limbic impulses. In other words, that they don't involve the part of the brain that he says was the most human, the neocortex. In fact, most of our behaviors, according to McLean, were driven by unconscious limbic emotional regions of the brain. Hence, the diminishment, again, of the sense of thought, consciousness, and free will being the chief uh, descriptors of the human experience. In the 1970s, perhaps the greatest single blow to the idea that we control what we do consciously, that all of our behaviors are the results of thoughts, conscious, and that we control our behaviors, 
consciously was the neurologist Benjamin Labatt, who uh, developed this ingenious uh, clinical study where he attached EEG electrodes to um, people's heads and he had them sit at a desk in front of this oscilloscope timer, as I recall, and asked them to press a button uh, and to note the exact space, the exact uh, time based on where the red dot of this timer was that they came up with the idea to push the button. So what he found was that before the, we were consciously aware that we were going to push the button, about a half second earlier, there was all this brain activity in pre-conscious regions of the brain, especially uh, the motor cortex. And that this unconscious uh, activity, what he called action potential, or uh, there's other words for it, um, uh, it, while it seemed that we were consciously deciding when to push the button, in fact, well before we consciously decided, there was already all these unconscious regions outside of our control that had made the decision for us. Now, uh, one thing that Libet noted, which is very important, he said that the impulse that drives our behaviors and our actions are pre-conscious, that they're not consciously organized, but that there's just enough space, about 200 milliseconds, where consciousness could intervene and stop an impulse rather than allowing the impulse to be fully acted out as a behavior. So whereas the impulses, all of the the decisions, as it were, or the urges that guide our behavior are unconscious. He stated that there was just enough room for consciousness to say, no, that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to act out on it. I'm going to stop myself. So many, many, many people read of this study and concluded that if unconscious brain regions were the true initiators of our actions, that free will played little, if any, role in our actions. Of course, free will can be defined as our actions not being governed by mechanisms outside of our conscious control. And that's what much of Labatt was showing, that Outside of our conscious control, there were these pre-conscious motor regions and limbic regions of the brain that were making, uh, creating impulses and urging us to act, and that these pre-conscious, unconscious regions were responsible for our behaviors. But of course, Libet believed that given that consciousness still had time to veto bad impulses. In other words, he showed that whereas the impulse to push a button was unconscious, but we still had veto power. So Libet mem memorably said, we don't have free will, but we have free won't. I won't do that. The power of the veto, as he said. So all of the role of free will revolved around not that we can literally uh, so much make decisions volitionally on our own, but that we can stop and wait until better impulses come around that are maybe less harmful. So um, there's no single region of the brain that it should be noted that controls our behavior. There's no inner me. And this brings us to the work of one of my heroes, Robert Sapolsky, the Stanford professor of biology, neurology, neuroscience. He's even um, an endocrinologist. He even is certified as a neurosurgeon and he's also an anthropologist of sorts. He's a smart guy. Uh, I think probably the smartest 
uh, human being that I can personally name off the top of my head. So for Sobolski notes that behavior is the result of a really complex array of multiple context dependent influences. So here we go. I'm just going to give a few of them. If you ever want to read his masterpiece, the book Behave, he lists all of the different um, uh, influences that govern our behavior. And one of the things he concludes at the end is that we don't have a shred of free will, that there's simply too many influences that are not conscious, that are essentially governing so he says that millions of years before we act, there's the evolutionary pressures of our species that created the genetic makeup of our brain, resulting in the origin of our survival behaviors. Hundreds of years before our culture and heritage were shaped, leading to all the unconscious beliefs that, for instance, if you look at many countries, there are huge differences between the ethos and belief systems of people in the South versus people in the North, not just in the US, but Italy, England, uh, et cetera, um, uh, Brazil, Argentina. There's a huge difference between people who live in Southern regions and Northern regions. And these create entirely different moral perspectives on what is integrity, honor, what constitutes success and all that. Decades before any action, there are traumatic events that might have been um, imposed on the communities or the ethnicities to which we belong. If you're a person of color, member of the LGBTQ community, if you're uh, a Jew, such as myself, or an Armenian, or, uh, uh, you know, I said person of color, um, historical traumas leave lasting imprints on the autonomic nervous system of subsequent generations. And even though the traumas have passed, the changes to the autonomic nervous system persist. Before birth, the hormones that we were exposed to in childhood if our parents were unreliable or overwhelming, these can create lasting mood or anxiety disorders, disorganized attachment, which will interfere with our ability to regulate and veto impulses. In adolescence, what were the drugs and environmental pressures that wired our frontal cortex? Weeks to months before we acted, were we uh, in a stressful period, or were we relaxed in homeostasis? The day of an action, what did we eat for breakfast? What hormones sensitized the stimuli and minutes before what was going on in the environment that primed us towards a behavior? Now you add all of these influences up, and Sapolsky says it's just too, there's just too many influences to leave any room for free will or a conscious, uh, a conscious role. Most, he's not in the majority, that's to be sure, in that while most people, most neuropsychologists and psychologists acknowledge the validity of his insights, they still argue that there's still some room for consciousness and veto power and that's where self, that's where free will lies and the ability to inhibit an action. But if we look at the brain as we know it today, we see just how many non-conscious regions are responsible for our actions. For instance, while the area of the brain that's most associated with consciousness and volitional control, which is the frontal cortex, uh, which can postpone and veto uh, some of our impulses from uh, older regions of the brain, uh, but very, very little of the impulses that uh, uh, initiate behavior come from this region. The worst of our behaviors come from a region known as the amygdala. I'm sure by now you've heard me mention this 
region. It's the uh, region that uh, assesses the environment that you're in at every moment of your day, and it looks for threats, anything that could be threatening or anything that requires a survival response. Unfortunately, the amygdala is very prone to making mistakes. It can mistake a stick uh, in the park for a snake. It can mistake a rustle in the woods for a bear. It can mistake the quizzical look on a friend for the signs of rejection. And very often these mistakes lead to what are called amygdala hijacks, where the fight, flight, fawn, survival behaviors are initiated and overwhelm the frontal lobe's ability to veto. And so at that moment, when we become activated, all of our behaviors are essentially non, uh, we would call them non-volitional. They're based on um, the much earlier regions of the brain that have no conscious uh, activity that are actually uh, mammalian, one could say, in origin. Then there's the mesolimbic reward system. Just like the amygdala, the reward system, which lies at the hub of addictions and instant gratification and reward, can also hijack and override uh, volitional control. Hence, so many of the actions by people who are addicted to substances or um, shopping, uh, gaming, gambling, food are governed by mesolimbic uh, dopamine reward systems, which overpower the frontal lobe and our conscious ability to control what we do. And then there's the insula. This is the hub of disgust and revulsion. At first, the insula was responsible for feeling disgust at rancid food we might eat. But over the course of evolution, the insula also became very much at the hub of our moral judgments and the visceral force behind our beliefs. And these, this region is also non-conscious but it gives all the force and all of the emotional impact to the political and moral perspectives. This is why it's so hard to argue with people on the other side of debates, you know, politically about vaccinations and all that, because their critical uh, uh, conscious regions are very easily co-opted by the insula, which creates a sense of disgust and revulsion at the point of view of other people. The striatum is the hub of repetitive uh, habitual behaviors, and that too can hijack and override frontal control. So when you look at it, a couple of things are very clear. There's much of our lives where we are not in conscious control of what we're doing. And in fact, conscious control, which is articulated in simply saying, no, this is a bad idea. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to wait until a better impulse comes around, is actually a pretty rare occurrence. It requires a lot of things to go right. And furthermore, what we learn is that there's no single region of the brain or network that runs the show. There are a lot of different complexly wired neural circuits that are constituent of our internal uh, uh, processes and decision uh, making. So there's no singular you or soul or identity calling the shots. One might ask, what's creating the illusion of a conscious, a continuous identity? Well, we all have this, what we experience as an I or a me is an illusion provided by one small region of the left temporal lobe, which creates its Broca's region 
and it's actually responsible for inner speech or thought. The narrator of the brain desperately adds a story that creates a sense of coherence to our acts and to our feelings by retroactively adding the story of why I did this. So thought gives the illusion that thought is the center and the uh, creator of our behaviors. But it's not, as we know from the work of Gazaniga Ledoux and so many others, self-reflective thought occurs at least a half a second after the impulse for any behavior begins. So we don't think and act, we act or we have the impulse to act and then we add a story, then we think. So uh, <clears throat> as Gazaniga's wonderful experiments with split brain pa uh, hemispheric patients showed, very often the left temporal lobe when it's narrating why we do the things we do gets it entirely wrong. And if you ever want to look up some wonderful experiments on just how uh, confused and often blind we are to what our real intentions or underlying um, motivations are, just look up Paul Gazaniga, that's G-A-Z-Z-A-N-I-G-A, -Z -Z Gazaniga, and look up his left hemispheric uh, research, and you'll just, it's mind-blowing in just showing how many times uh, individuals had no clue why they were acting the way they were acting. Uh, and there's the way these experiments were set up is fascinating, too. So, um, the core influences the genetics, the hormones, the attachment drives, the traumas, the socioeconomic pressures, and the various unconscious regions of the brain that initiate behaviors are all invisible. But the left uh, Broca's region of the, temp of the frontal lobe uh, essentially are what creates a story that makes it seem as if we're in control. One of the big problems is that the inner speech or inner thought region of the brain is very, very prone to what's called mood congruence. So rather than feel or be in a mood and then look for reasons or think about reasons we shouldn't be that way, or we should uh, play devil's advocate and uh, find contrary evidence, it does the exact opposite. Thought tends to justify our underlying mood states. So our interpretations can often be just based entirely on uh, trying to translate whatever mood we're in, but they actually don't do a very good job of it. <laughs> so for example, someone who is uh, feeling insecure in a relationship in a relationship will look for evidence, maybe that their partner is cheating. They might encounter tons and tons of evidence that their partner isn't cheating on them, but they'll never accept or really deeply in, uh, understand or incorporate the disconfirming evidence. People, when they check their, their partners or their exes' phones or Facebook pages, are never really looking for uh, information that tells them that the relationship is safe, that they're secure. They're always unconsciously looking for verification of their underlying mood, which is insecure. Um, so it's very difficult though to conceive of a world where the, this diminished capacity for free will is truly understood, where we begin to acknowledge just how much of human behavior is not driven by conscious control but is actually uh, stemming from deeply old regions of the brain that are shared by 
animals in the mammalian kingdom and are, you know, that are in no way uh, cognitive or adult in origin. It challenges our conceptions of not only morality and our sense of self, but it completely undermines, for example, all of the presuppositions of our criminal justice system, the catastrophe of mass incarceration. There's 2.3 million Americans in prison in any given year, um, which is about a quarter of the entire world's prison population, is based on the delusion that individuals invariably act of free will, choosing to commit harm, rather than acknowledging all the influences that go into behavior, such as um, the traumas that various ethnicities, various uh, races have endured, the socioeconomic pressures, the provocations, and especially the states of uh, that we're in, whether someone is inebriated or not, all of which lead up to criminal acts. The vast majority of criminal acts are actually not acted by people who are in any rational state of mind. This uh, undermines, you know, so many of our beliefs that we alone are responsible for our achievements rather than acknowledging all of the things that luckily went right for us to allow us to have any socioeconomic privileges or have even the capability of making rational choice. Sapolsky wonderfully argues that 500 years ago, the most intelligent and liberal minds believed that anyone who was having a seizure was demon possessed and should be burned at the stake. So even if you were a liberal or progressive, if somebody had a seizure in front of you, you would believe that, oh, that person had sex with the devil. Let's burn them. Let's like uh, chain them and throw them in the river because they're no good. But now we understand, of course, that that person is probably having an epileptic fit and that it has nothing to do with a demonic possession. And so slowly over time, increasing amounts of criminal cases are thrown out or punishments mitigated due to extenuating circumstances. The age of the accused, the mental illness, the history of drug, alcohol abuse, environmental factors are all taken into consideration. So we are moving, but too slowly in a direction where we begin to understand that the illusion that people are rational, conscious beings uh, always responsible for all their actions is slowly but surely eroding. Now the question might be, how do we change with so little free will? While we're largely mechanistic biological entities, the brain isn't by any means unalterable. The brain is neuroplastic, change happens all the time. And while the brain can't really change itself so much, external conditions can very quickly change unconscious processes. It's easy to overlook just how much change, in fact, the brain is capable of. We just go about it the wrong way. We try to change our brains through thinking but in fact, what uh, has been shown repeatedly is that if you want to change the way your brain works, you change the context where your brain functions. So for example, suppose you were repeatedly shamed in childhood. Your amygdala as a result is hypervigilant for facial cues by anyone signaling rejection. And when you see anything that you could mistake as 
criticism or rejection, it activates either a fight or a fight impulse. You'll either just want to get away from them or you'll want to act aggressively towards them. But suppose you go to the right therapist or you go to a spiritual community where you meet with people who give you a constant warm regard over and over and over. Well, that will create what's called a corrective emotional experience. Because we're an attachment species, the facial cues and the regard of other people literally can change not only how the amygdala and the limbic system responds to stimuli, but then it can change almost all of our behaviors as a result. None of this change was done consciously through volitional thought. It simply engaged or required us to go to a different setting so that our brains could respond unconsciously to that setting and thus change our behaviors. This is why the Buddha extolled over and over again the Sangha, which is the community, as well as Kalyanamita, wise spiritual friends, as the hub of spiritual growth, not meditation. He said it was surrounding yourself with wise spiritual friends. He also said there was a very important role for meditation, and we'll see what that is in a moment. But the epicenter for change and growth for the Buddha was surrounding yourself with wise spiritual people. Now, um, Sobolski also noted that if you're being asked by others to think about the meaning of your impulses before you act on them, along the way, while you pause, due to this influence of people around you, you might actually begin to develop even greater veto power. So once again, surrounding ourselves with people who encourage us to create, either create a safe environment or encourage us to observe and reflect on our actions and impulses before we act on them, actually that too can change the brain. Um, another study shows that finding, finding in any environment soothing objects to rest your gaze on, over, and over, over time you'll change your brain. You'll strengthen the cingulate, which focuses attention, and that actually helps override impulses. People who have um, uh, impulse control problems very often have um, diminished or compromised cingulate function. So strengthening your cingulate by finding in any environment a plant, a window, uh, something to look at, can resting your gaze on it um, is, and just keep resting it on it, breathe slower, that actually will strengthen the cingulate and allow you to have greater flexibility and impulse control. Um, another way we can exert greater control is that by slowing down. Slowing down activates the anterior cingulate cortex, which in conjunction with the dorsal frontal medial cortex forms the key circuit in vetoing bad ideas, bad impulses. When you slow down, when you move slower, when you speak slower, that happens to be associated also with the, those very regions of the brain initiate social concern, where we actually start to think about or reflect on our actions in terms of what they mean about our bonds with others. And there's a famous neuroscientist, Simone Kuhn, who showed in a paper that uh, intentional inhibition is based on the same regions of the brain that uh, involves social empathy, concern, with our relationships with others and how others feel. And that all of this, again, is activated by slowing down, 
walking, moving slower. Uh, vagal nerve stimulation activates also greater impulse control and pro-social concerns. And that, as Barbara Fredrickson showed, can be achieved through meta-meditation, an ancient Buddhist practice of wishing uh, peace, happiness, and well-being to all beings. Um, <clears throat> finally, I would note that uh, the Buddha's core teachings on anatta and clinging tie into all of what we've been talking about tonight. The mind, according to the Buddha, was never comprised of any single soul or self or identity, but multiple complex operations. He listed at least five major groups of complex operations. He said, uh, body, movements and body embodied regions of the brain, unconscious feelings, emotional, what we would call now limbic drives, conscious ego states, and then uh, perceptions. And all these for the Buddha, with the exception of uh, <clears throat> one region, the Sankara was unconscious. And he noted that because of this, there's not a core self driving the show, and that our attempts to cling to our thoughts, uh, to add coherence, often created a delusion that conscious control was, or that behavior was always generated by thought. And that, in fact, the greatest for him way to establish free will and self-control was simply through mindfulness, observing what we're doing and observing it at, from a detached perspective. Once again, that activates the regions of the brain that we associate with empathy and social concerns, the dorsal medial frontal cortex. So, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to actually do a practice now where we develop uh, or strengthen our ability to veto bad impulses and to ex exert what little free will we have so that we can maximize it and override some of the immediate automatic survival behaviors generated by the much older regions of the brain, including the limbic amygdala and dopamine reward systems. So thanks for listening to that. I hope something was worth your reflection. And now we're going to practice some meditation. So find a really comfortable seated position. And just allow yourself to get as comfortable as you'd like. Just not to the extent that there's a proneness to falling asleep. If you're <clears throat> lying on a ground or on a bed, you can just put a lift your hand in such a way that you're holding it over your face. That's a lying down meditation technique. So if you fall asleep, your hand will slap you on your face. <laughs> That's what they, one of the things I learned uh, studying with a monastic. Um, closing the eyes. And reeling in your attention from the world around or your thoughts about anything that's not going on in the present. You don't have to get rid of thought, but just bring your attention to
things that are happening right now, especially in your internal experience, sensations of the body. And if there's any area of the body that you immediately notice is uncomfortable, clothes too tight, sitting in a way that could be adjusted and be more easeful, then allow yourself to make that adjustment. There's no benefit to being at all uncomfortable when we practice. And just acquaint yourself with how you're feeling right now. There's no right place to start. Whatever you're feeling, whether it's tired, anxious, sad, excited, bored, lonely, uh, intrigued, preoccupied, whatever is your state, start there and just observe, how do I know? Right now I am in one mood or another. What's it like right now? There's no right or wrong answer. It just is this. And don't try to, as the Buddha said, don't try to become anything else. Just try first to observe what you're experiencing right now as if you've never been in a human body before. You're a celestial consciousness that has landed in a human body. And for the first time, you're becoming aware of what it's like to be in a body. This is the first time you've had moods and feelings and just become aware of how they express themselves. So let's try to incline the mind to a more observant and a state where we have a greater awareness of all the impulses arriving. And the way we do this is by slowing down, relaxing,
So let's start by bringing awareness to the breath and see if you can incline the length of the inhalation and especially the exhalation to grow longer. So if you breathe into a count of three or four, try to make sure that the exhalation is at least that long, if not longer. Leaving as much space between an exhalation and the next in-breath where you can really settle into that spacious period where the body is most inert. See if you can dislodge the sense that consciousness is in your head, between your ears and behind your eyes, and extend awareness down into your body, all the way down into, if possible, the abdominal region, and begin to connect the inhalation with the belly softening and expanding or simply expanding. And then with the exhalation, the release and the resettling of the abdominal muscles. Breathing into the belly activates the vagal nerve. And much like slowing down, it helps us achieve a state where we have the greatest cognitive flexibility and the greatest veto control over impulses. The faster we move, think and act, breathe, the more likely that the very strong and fast impulses from the limbic region will override your conscious control. And then slowing down, breathing, moving slower. Abdominal breathing, we exert those states that predispose us to exerting top-down processing or, or inhibiting bad impulses, gaining control over how we act and what we pay attention to, even how we think.
And now to strengthen the regions of the brain that allow us to gain some veto power over old survival, fight, fight, fawn, freeze impulses of the brain, as well as the addictive craving impulses, we're going to do a little meta practice, which has been shown to be very beneficial towards those concerns. So bring to mind somebody that you admire or care about. Hold them in your mind. If you can visualize them, visualize them. With a welcoming look or look that best expresses who they are. And just wish them unconditional positive regard. May they be happy. May they be peaceful. May they be free of stress and suffering. Happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Let their image fade and bring to mind someone that you're concerned about. Someone who you want to be well or just are concerned about their either well-being or their who have been going through a difficult time, holding their image in mind. May they be happy. May they be peaceful. May they be free of stress and suffering. You now bring to mind someone that you don't know very well, someone that you might see, locally, someone that you've met recently, just to practice expanding the compassion and empathy regions of the brain, which are also associated with impulse control, strengthening our sense of being a master over our own behaviors. So visualize somebody that you don't know very well, hold them in your mind, May they be happy. May they be peaceful. May they be free of stress and suffering. 
happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. And lastly, bring up someone that's not easy to practice compassion or kindness with, someone who we'd like to even maybe remove from our thoughts, but knowing that aversion, resentment keeps them returning to our thoughts, and that practicing compassion, knowing that all harmful behaviors originate from some degree of stress. After all, the more stress and suffering, the more likely we are to act out on harmful impulses. So bring somebody to mind that you've struggled with. And just to the degree that you can right now, may they be happy. May they be peaceful. May they be free of stress and suffering. And just let their image fade. Get smaller and smaller till they're no longer present. And with that, whenever you're ready, feel invited to open your eyes. And thank you for your practice. Hope tonight's talk was of some benefit. 